Welcome to the Way of the Emotional Warrior podcast. Where we investigate how to master and harness the energy of our emotions to regain our power, vitality, confidence, and quality of life. There are tons of websites, books, videos, and courses that speak about changing your thoughts and mindset. You know, three steps to this, nine tips for that. Old school personal development told us that all of our blocks come from the brain and our thinking process. However, new research proves that our thinking and decision making actually comes from our emotions. After all, emotions are energy in motion. Emotions drive our money decisions, life choices, relationships, and even our health and fitness. Having the life of freedom and joy that we all crave requires that we first master our emotional center. Welcome to The Way of the Emotional Warrior. All right, welcome to another episode of The Way of the Emotional Warrior podcast. Today we have a special guest. His name is Jeremy Sherman. Welcome to our show. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. All right. He's got that DJ voice, so this is going to be great. So. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, I'm just going to go ahead and pass it right to you. Tell us who you are and your story. And uh, at the end of the episode, I will have him share his links. And I will also put the links as to where you can contact him into the show notes. So carry on, Jeremy. All right. Uh, who am I? Good question. Um, I wonder about it myself sometimes. I, um, I've enjoyed the dumb luck uh, of circumstance that has freed me up to think um, and write and research all day long, kind of unconstrained by obligations. It wasn't always like this, but um, but uh, I've had two main careers. The first one was years as an activist, you could say as an emotional warrior. Those <laughs> included founding a national uh, lobbying organization on environmental issues, and before that, living on the world's largest hippie commune, um, where we definitely considered ourselves emotional warriors, uh, uh, out to save the world, something like that. Um, around uh, 38 years old, I had a really juicy midlife crisis and kind of re regenerated or de uh, yeah, I regenerated myself in a new form. That happens to lots of folks. Sometimes it ends up with a red sports car. In my case, it ended up with a um, an avid hunger interest uh, in studying who the heck we are, how do we get here, that kind of stuff uh, in the most fundamental sense. And around that time, I lucked into the company of a Harvard neuroscientist, biological anthropologist, who I've been jamming with now for 25 years. He moved, he ended up moving to Berkeley, uh, to UC Berkeley. And uh, we've been working together on some very big questions. Prior to meeting him, he had done 20 years of neuroscience research on the evolution of our capacity to use language. Uh, wrote it up in a big book called The Symbolic Species. That is, we're symbol-competent organisms. Uh, all organisms use signs of one sort or another, but symbols are a peculiar kind of sign, uh, language and all of that. And so that was his work prior to uh, uh, us getting together. We got, we started working, I've, I collaborated with him on his next big project, uh, which you could describe most simplistically as uh, the origins of life. But it's actually kind of different from that. So we're talking about the chemical, physical origins of life. But uh, we don't think of it that way so much as the origins of trying, selves and trying. That is, uh, 
Darwin refers to the struggle for existence, but he acknowledges in the book that he doesn't explain it. He simply just assumes that organisms are struggling for their existence. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, the sciences have overlooked the question of explaining the struggle for existence. But it's we make effort, and physical chemical systems, including machines, don't make effort. They do work, but effort is a peculiar kind of work. It's it's work on behalf. Uh, it's by an organism for uh, for the organism with respect to its environment and its goals. So that's trying. And the the big question we've been focusing on is explaining from chemistry how selves and trying emerged with the struggle for existence. Uh, with no smoke and mirrors, we, no no philosophical gesturing, no. Uh, uh, no resorting to supernatural explanations. We're just trying to understand what is trying and how did it start. We have a theory we've been developing over the years. So, the, so those I call my overall work cradle to grave because I work on everything from the origins of life, our cradle, to our grave situation, and um, that's a broad uh, spectrum. I call it my middle age spread. Um, uh, my my last whole focus was uh, I just finished writing a book and a podcast um, uh, in a field I've called psychoproctology, which is uh, trying to understand what's going on with buttheads um, and trying to come to a better diagnosis of what is a butthead, since it can't just be whomever you happen to buttheads with. And so the that's one of the two questions. The other one is how do you stop them without becoming one in the process? So that's all written up in my recent book. Um, and like I said at the beginning, I'm just, I get to, because of luck of circumstances, investments, basically an inheritance early on in life, um, I get to spend my whole day writing, researching, thinking it up a notch, and I've been doing that for about 25 years in the company of, of people who, who bring a rigor to their research, um, and chiefly this one guy, Terrence Deacon, uh, who was at Harvard and is now at Berkeley. Well, that's impressive. We, uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago when we set this up, and it turns out that one of my heroes that I did my master's thesis on is Wendell Berry. And uh, Jeremy says, Oh, yeah, I had lunch with that guy, you know, so <laughs> quite interesting, you know, who it is that, you know, the circle brings together. Uh, I, the universe never ceases to amaze me just just for me us, too. much less me the too. bigger picture. But all right, so let's dive into some of this. I um, think that one of the, the piece when you talked about uh, human beings, you know, effort by the organism and for the organism, what you just mentioned here, and the neuroscience. Uh, last week, I did an episode on uh, playfulness and curiosity for ourselves. And what I found quite interesting is in my podcast, part two of each episode is always neuroscience-based. That's, that's part of what I do in, in my show. What I found is several researchers, one of them was Lowenstein, who found in the neuroscience that we're sort of set up in our brain to fill in gaps, right? To now, and that's what curiosity ultimately is, is to fill in all these gaps. So what do you think of that? I see you smiling. What do you... Yeah. Well, I'm smiling for a few reasons. One is, and I swear this will be my last name drop. I had dinner with Lowenstein. There we go. Sorry, nice. sorry. No, that was... And it wasn't, it wasn't based on my status. I had brought 
to the uh, Society for Personality and Social Psychology, Dan Ellsberg, who was considered one of the founders sure. of behavioral economics. Yeah. Um, Dan's a local guy. This all comes from living in Berkeley. So I got him there and he was he was invited to dinner with Lowenstein. So I had dinner with him, too. Nice. Um, and that's I swear that's the last name drop I'll ever do. Um, so what what do you what is a neuroscientist, a behavioral economist and an author on a-holes have to say at dinner? This is a bad joke setup, but what do they have to say at dinner? What what happened? All, all, all I can say is that everything I said was ina inadequate. Wow. Yeah. These, these uh, are for strong. the company I was keeping. No, I kept I'm, I was mostly listening anyway. Um, uh I think of us, I, I think of minds, and this is, this is echoing what Terry thinks, and he's a neuroscientist, I'm not. Mm -hmm. There's a mistake uh, in current impressions about what minds are. It comes out of cognitive science. This assumption that the, the, a computer is a good metaphor for a mind. It's not. Um, for so many reasons, it's almost the opposite of a computer. But we do think of the mind as a virtual computer generator. That is, uh, we're faced with tough judgment calls, and we're trying to pack our the, pack them away into habits, reliable habits, as fast as we can. The mind is a pinhole in a flood. It's just overwhelming how many possibilities we all have to deal with. And this is especially true of humans, given language. That is, we're just, I think of us as trudging through a sandstorm of possibilities. Hmm. Um, so we have to pack as much into habit as quick as we can. Um, and so all organisms are, are habit accumulating. And you could say that animals with nervous systems are habit seeking, but I'd say that humans are habit craving. We're jonesing for habits. We want to turn as much as we can into habits. So I've also written a book on doubt. Doubt has been kind of fundamental to my research all along. Doubt is the irritant that raises something to consciousness because you haven't been able to resolve it to habit. Um, so so that that's one initial response to that. Are we trying to fill in gaps? I would say we're trying to resolve doubt would be a kind of a fundamental for us all. And how now, we do is very interesting. Yes. Uh, Part of what I discovered in psychology anyway, slash sociology was that the moment we get into constancy, we have a need for novelty, right? They, they kind of sit at the same end of the, of the polar spectrum. Well, not the same end, but on the ends of the polar spectrum. So if we're seeking this habit forming, yet we want novelty and creativity, you know, there's this sort of crazy imbalance. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think yeah, of that? I, I think I think uh, I think that's right. I think that's also uh, a human capacity more than it is in animals, though there, it is in animals too. Um, uh, and where we want novelty and where we want habit is fundamentally interesting to me. For example, um, I think the free will debate is completely re uh, is framed poorly primarily because it's not paying attention to what will is. That is free will, people assume that there's will and they're arguing that it has total latitude or some variation on that. Determinists ignore will, but the, the origins of life research that I do is all about will. That is the will to live is the fundamental. And no, it doesn't start with humans. It starts with 
the very first organisms ever. Mm. That is, they were trying to live. In the meantime, we could, we could step back from all that and ask, well, what do we want? What are we rooting for? And there's a general intuition that people want freedom, um, that we're hoping we have free will. Uh, and my sense is that actually, no, we, what we want is a ratchet. We want the freedom to climb to better advantage, but we want determinism to keep us from falling. That mm. that would be uh, the emotional tendency. And also it, it would be a societal tendency. You could say that the technology we've got right now is so reliable, we don't even notice how dependent we are on it for our stability until our, our uh, Wi-Fi goes out or something like that, or the, the stores closed during COVID, something like that. But because of that, we are particularly, uh, you could say, promiscuous in looking for to stir up innovation and novelty. That hasn't always been the case for humans. It isn't always the case for organisms. Um, but we've got so much headroom, so much free, freed up uh, obligation in, in our effort and our struggle for existence that we end up kind of mischievous. And this is a point of the, the uh, primatologist uh, Robert Sapolsky. He goes out and studies, I think it's uh, baboons. And he says that these guys have enough free time in their day that they're always messing with each other. They're just <laughs> messing with They're just trying to stir up stuff. I think a lot of what we want is what I'll call cliche Guevara. That is, mm. we want stuff that sounds revolutionary, sounds innovative, but is actually a reaffirmation of what we already believe. Um, mm. So okay. that's, but that's a human appetite and relatively recent. You wouldn't have found this in the Middle Ages, I don't think, nearly no, as much. They, no, no, they're no. called heretics back then, you know, <laughs> and burned at the stake. Yes, yes. Uh, side question, you know, we were kind of talking about it here a little bit. I'm curious what do you think freedom is? I mean, you talked about your own ability through, you know, circumstance to be able to do what it is you want to do. What do you think freedom is? Like, how would you, I, I don't know about the word define, but it, it, let's talk no, about freedom it's, it's, for, let's talk about freedom for a second. Yeah. So, so uh, stepping back for a second, let me mention this about my methodology. When I look at a word like freedom, I'm not working from my intuition so much as from my origins of life story. I'm this weird guy who's got a hypothesis, a working scientific hypothesis for what will is and how in physical terms it emerges at the origins of life. And everything, when I look at a term like freedom, I'm looking at it from that basis and how it changes uh, through the various uh, stages of life. That is, you've got all these organisms that don't feel and don't think, and yet they are working on their own behalf, uh, like plants or bacteria. Mm -hmm. And uh, today I will regenerate without thinking or feeling about it, I'll regenerate 240 billion cells. Um, right. So there's that kind of hustle going on in all of us. So there's that, then there's the neurological organisms, animals, and then there's humans, which are the symbolic creature, a total freak in nature, um, because we have this whole language world in which we get to uh, uh, get into details, you could say. Language gives us a precision. They could be, they could be fictional details, but we can get into them. Um, and they afford us a particular kind of freedom. So I'm interested in how freedom changes uh, at every level. But at the most fundamental level, um, I'm thinking 
in terms of freedoms and constraints. This is, this is core to the science work we do. Constraints are overlooked in the natural sciences, less so now than maybe 10 years ago, but they're, but they're really interesting, constraints. So uh, I can't walk through a wall because the wall's there. Okay, that's an imposed constraint, and it's a solid static constraint. But I also will end up changing what I'm likely to do based on things as simple as traffic congestion. Traffic congestion isn't made of cars. It's made through cars. Cars come through it. Mm -hmm. And yet it is a constraint that will change what's likely to happen. Um, so um, I think of myself, so we would call that in a dynamic constraint or an emergent constraint. It's not a thing. Congestion is not a physical static thing. It's a relationship between things relative to things outside of them. That is Okay. Congestion. Just think about what congestion is. That's a that's an right. example of it. So that ends up explaining all sorts of things like whirlpools and all of that. But but check this out to to jump way up to what I how I think of myself as an emotional warrior at the mm -hmm. most fundamental level. Um, I'm a constraint that channels energy into effort to regenerate the constraint. What I am <laughs> is a, a limitation, a very complicated limitation on what happens. Um, I'm not something added to physics and chemistry, nor am I just uh, physical chemical interactions. I am an emergent constraint. Um, and so I'm in the business of limiting all of the physical possibilities. Physical possibilities, um, uh, I take to be, the, you could say freedom. I take freedom to be fundamental in the universe. That's I, I, my, the ground is, anything goes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so the interesting question to me is not why is there something instead of nothing, but why is there something instead of everything? Everything is possible. How does it get constrained so that certain things happen are more likely to happen than others? And how does that constraint change over the course from physics to the origins of life to humans and all of that? Um, so, Constraints are, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I would say this, I'm looking for the right constraints, not the wrong constraints. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's yeah. got to be where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. So um, it's, it's why I'm paying a lot of attention these days to, to uh, superstitious and superfluous moral edicts. Mm. Uh, you know, some people collect moral principles the way that Imelda Marcos collected shoes. <laughs> you know, like the more you have, the more status you've got. But every moral, every moral principle you try to live by, really live by rather than just give lip service to, is a constraint on your behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be a warrior, you actually need more latitude than that. You can't afford to just be hamstringing yourself every which way for the status that it confers on you. You'll end up being a hypocrite. You'll end up claiming that you live by certain moral constraints that you don't. So I'm really interested in this question. How do you pick the right constraints? How do you prioritize your constraints? It's a kind of moral triage. What's a priority for you to be crusading for? Uh, what should you not be crusading for? What should you be crusading for, but you really can't afford to? Because you're not going to end up making a difference on it anyway. Uh, what what do you need not crusade on because it's going to take care of itself? All those questions are really interesting to me. Uh, and they're about how do you constrain your freedom? David Hawkins in Power Versus Force. 
Have you read that? Do you know that? I book? have not read that one. Oh, you get that. I have yourself. not read that one, but I've had dinner with him. I'm just kidding. Yes, I bet. <laughs> I so, can make it all this stuff up. Uh, Empower versus Force, which is kind of one of the first pieces of momentum that got me going in this direction. He talks about, uh, he uses uh, kinesthetics to be able to test whether or not you have lower vibrational emotions or higher, right? So he has the lower band, which is they assign between zero all the way to 1000 and two, the level of 200 is the critical point, critical mass. So everything under 200, anger, despair, things like that, grief, guilt, those are all the heavy weighted emotions on the bottom, right? And then you try to get to this level 200 where you're now moving into the higher bands, courage, wisdom, peace. So 500 is love and above, which is sort of the few people, but those who get to this love and above actually elevate other people. They, they no longer do the work only for themselves. They do the work for numerous people. And and let's say a Jesus or a Buddha would be, let's say at the thousand level mark, they've, they've really cleared all the stuff away. They can lift millions of people with their, you know, way with their vibrational frequency. So, the the constraints that you're talking about this the limitations to me it seems like it's not a matter of gaining something on purpose it's really removing those interferences those blocks from what you don't want so if i don't want anger and grief as an emotional warrior then my liberation from that is to be able to a like in your book when you wrote you have to kind of name it right you name it you become aware of it you understand it and now you move, not so much dwelling on it, because you're already in it. Sometimes you just got to think from the outside and look back in if that's what you want to heal. But if you get past that 200 level, you now start to move into different possibilities. Someone who comes from a place of love, a fundamental place of love and compassion has a different way of interacting with the world than someone who comes from a place of anger and despair and frustration. That's that. That's his work. Okay, and one of his other books that's really profound is called Letting Go, and that Letting Go, I guess you know, I'm trying to parallels to what you were saying from from what I put into my course, and that is, if you let go of these, it, it's not that they're wrong emotions, but if you let go of the heavy weighted emotions that keep you going around and around and around without any way out. You know, the same old, same old work is not moving forward. Your home life's not moving forward. I think sometimes you have to jump out into a new bucket, you know, almost. And a new bucket is a new emotion. And like what you did, you have these midlife crises. I think that happens when your bucket's full and you're just sick and tired of being in that bucket. You're tired of the people you're with. You're tired of, of the environment. You just want to get out. And maybe there's there are times where it's worthwhile to jump out and go into another bucket of emotions. Maybe you surround yourself with different people. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about cleaning up some of your older stuff? Because I think that's kind of the first point of contact we had. You said don't negate, you know, some of those heavier or negative emotions. And I, I'm just curious where, you know, where your thinking goes with yeah, that. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure there are parallels and contrast between uh, what you describe and, and my perspective on it. It's just my perspective on it in a way we're just shop talking different uh perspectives on it um for me uh, um 
I was, I joined that hippie commune uh, with a sense that love was the answer, that I was going to elevate myself to higher levels, of higher vibrations. And, and there in the, this hippie commune, we used this interesting metaphoric, uh, sciencey sounding language about vibrations, good vibes, good energy, uh, mm -hmm. the juice, we called it, which was kind of a beatnik word for electricity. Um, since then, I, obviously, I have moved away from those metaphors because um, uh, I'm interested in actually explaining the difference between, let's say, voltage and vibes. I mean, for example, we don't yeah. think about when we talk about good vibes, we're not really probably talking about hertz, yeah. uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, or, or amplitude. It's something different. So I actually have to see the parallels and contrast between those. And for me, I do recognize what I talked about as constraint actually does have a new agey kind of sound it's channeling energy i channel energy mm. that is energy could do whatever the toast i could eat for breakfast this morning i didn't yet this morning but if i did it could also have been used to burn the house down it could you know whatever it's fuel yeah. so that i'm not my fuel um i'm something that constrains that fuel i channel energy but back to the question about love here's what i notice about that and noticed after i had been part of this community and really threw my all into love. Um, love is a evaluation statement. That is to say you love something is to say that you prefer it a lot. And one thing about per preference, and this comes out of the Tao, um, is that it's always relative. That is if you love something, you love it more than other things. And you could even say that if you love something, you hate its opposite. I mean, I have to face into that interesting conundrum about it, which is that if I love, if I love, uh, if, if I love justice, I hate injustice, or at least the more I love justice, the more I hate injustice. The more I love my children, the more I'd hate to see them hurt or killed. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to mince words about that. I have to face into that. Um, and uh, the same is true for connection. And connection has got a, uh, a lofty status these days, the idea of connection. I had a wonderful conversation with my neighbor at a block party recently. He was the son of a minister, and I asked him what he thought of God by now. And he said, um, well, I believe in a higher power that wants love. And uh, he basically got our back and encouraging us to, to head in the direction of love. Um, and uh, I asked him what he meant by, connection, uh, by love, and he said, well, it's connection. Well, I don't think the universe actually, you could, I could say the universe does want con connection at the most fundamental level. That is, the all, 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 all order is degenerating back mm. to the state of everything being everything. Uh, that is, it's blurring. Um, mm. And at death, everything will be all connected up. I will no longer be protected from my outside environment in, in important ways. Um, so yes, connection, but no, it's not the same as love. Love is prioritizing some things. So if I prioritize my children, I am trying to protect them. And he said, yeah, come to think of it, that's true. I don't tell my kid to connect with everything. In the meanwhile, his kid was right there pestering us to get in on the conversation and he was trying to keep the connection between us 
priority. So he was mm -hmm. keeping the kid at bay and the kid was running across the street and he was trying to prevent his kid from connecting with the car. And anyway, he was a computer programmer. Those guys are all about making the right connections, not the wrong <laughs> connections. Yeah. So, so for me, the idea that love is the answer, no, I don't think so. I think it's a question, what to love, where to mm -hmm. love. That's what the emotional warrior has to do. It's the same thing we were talking about before. I want freedom in the right ways. I want constraint in the right ways. Yeah. In fact, I, wanna, I, want to, I want to constrain myself to good external sources of constraint as well. Because I want, I want my environment to help discipline me. I say I can't usually change myself, but I can usually change my environment so it changes me. Right. And in a way that ties back into what we're talking about. Yeah, if, if mm -hmm. you're in a rut, um, one move you can make that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't is to break free and go join some, other, go find yourself a different groove right. until it turns into a rut. Yeah, that kind right. of thing. Uh, let's talk about your book. Let's go there. So, a, what prompted you to want to write a book about buttheads? Um. Well, the, there was a little bit of it in my personal life, but people, this is the problem with writing a book about buttheads is that people think you got a vendetta and you're just going to write a book about why you don't like a particular person or a particular movement. So I was really not driven by that much. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had encounters with people who I thought to be were but, uh, thought were buttheadish, but part of it was uh, actually um, a constraint based approach to moral philosophy. Moral philosophy is largely about what you should do, what we mm -hmm. all should do. Right. And I look around the world and I see a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of different things uh, that are working just fine. Um, sure. So live and let live. And if you don't like living with them, go live elsewhere. That's It's always easiest to live and let live with people you don't have to live with. So uh, there's that. But in the meantime, we do have to constrain a certain kind of behavior. And it's got a few names that kind of approximate it in psychology. We talk about narcissists or psychopaths. But I was noticing that in folk psychology, there were other terms that, that had no currency in psychology, in the social sciences. And one of them was butthead and the other more vulgar terms <laughs> for it. And I noticed that we were not particularly good at, uh, at tracking what's going on or generalizing with precision about buttheads because um, it, uh, we deal with one at a time and we, we think of it as, oh, he was he or she was a butthead, glad they're gone, and then go on without having necessarily accumulated many of the lessons uh, from it. I was also dealing with lots of people who ended up concluding that someone in their life was a butthead, um, an ex-partner, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, I write for Psychology Today, where one of the biggest topics, if you want to get a lot of page view, you write about how to diagnose your ex as a narcissist. Um, <laughs> it's a popular topic. Um, and I can understand why. But I want to get I want to be very careful about it. So I kind of ended up landing on this, you could say, koan, what is a butthead since it can't be just whomever you happen to butt heads with? And how do you stop them or prevent them without becoming one? Um, and I ended up writing a lot of articles about it. And sooner or later, I realized, uh, in part because of the season, I think that there's an epic an epidemic of buttheads. I think that it, for me, uh, you know, you can define these terms various different ways, but I define cult as the plural of butthead. Uh, mm -hmm. That is, uh, you know, like a gaggle of geese, you've got a, cu a cult of buttheads. 
Um, they may be decent people in many areas of their life, but there are people who end up joining cults and at least on some topics or with some people, they end up acting like buttheads. So I, I wrote this book. Uh, the first two thirds of it are just I, my most careful attempt to date to come up with a more objective definition or operationalization of the concept of butthead, completely nonpartisan. That is, it's not about what you claim to believe. It's how you strut it. It's something, it's a lifestyle. I end up thinking it's not a, uh, a permanent trait, nor is it something that you just do on occasion. It's a systematic thing. It's like being a butthead. Being is an interesting word because it's a verb mm -hmm. about nouning. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Uh, it's, uh, so to be, you're, you're actively maintaining a state. We're called living beings for that reason. Remember, I, I generate 240 billion uh, new cells every day. That's being, that's, that's verbing to noun. I want to stay a self and I have to do that work to stay a self. Uh, being a butthead is like that. So- and I also did it, like I mentioned earlier, I, I, I wrote this book from the perspective of someone who's trying to, who's engaged in what I'll call originism. If you want to explain a trait, if you want to understand a trait, explain it from its origins. So the origins of trying is at the origins of life. Um, basically, I'm operating on the, on the assumption that the lower level sciences have to explain what the higher level sciences assume. So my book on, which is called What's Up With A-Holes, Advanced Psychoproctology for Beginners, is totally accessible. It starts with something fundamental in the origins of life. It doesn't start with it, but to, to explain them, having ruled out that it's something they believe or it's something about their childhood, none of that I don't think defines a butthead. Uh, I end up going to this fundamental thing that all organisms have to do, selective interaction. You have to take in food, but not toxins. Right. Um, and I noticed that with language, that becomes confirmation bias. Mm. You, take in, you take in what you can use to regenerate yourself, and you keep out anything that will degenerate you. Well, what do you get when you cross that with language? You get confirmation bias. You, that is, you let in anything that, that regenerates your mojo, and you keep out anything that... Uh, that degenerate your mojo that's confirmation bias and for most of us for normal people and uh confirmation bias is a problem to be managed mm -hmm. but i would argue for buttheads it's the solution to all their problems confirmation bias is the solution to all of their problems hmm. okay well you know <laughs> you think alike right people think like um one of your sections in, in a chapter, I guess, is called outsourcing confirmation bias. And since yes. we just left on that term, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned earlier that I can't change myself, but I can usually change my environment so that it changes me. I am a social creature. I'm also a creature of habit. Um, so I try to set up my habits so that they reinforce and regenerate me in the directions I want to go. Uh, that's also part of that kind of midlife tri uh, crisis transition. In my case, uh, my midlife crisis included several factors, but one was that my marriage was falling apart. And why was it falling apart? We had been on the same page for decades. We'd met on the commune. 
mm. not decades, but uh, 17 years or so, we met on the commune. We, we had the same emotional warrior goals in our lives. But these days, there are so many different lifestyles available, especially if you live in a, uh, a place like Berkeley. And we started, we started to move in different directions, not radically different directions, but I got interested in uh, philosophy of science and mm. how to bring rigor to our interpretations. And she got more interested in things that were a uh, disappointment from my perspective. She increasingly got interested in those things. And we started, we got to a point where when, when I was doing what I wanted to be, what I aimed to be doing, it was disappointing to her. When I did what I was less interested in doing anymore, it was delightful to her and vice versa. We were, we were, <laughs> we were beginning to be, uh, we, we were beginning to rub each other right and wrong the wrong way. Yeah. That is, <laughs> if, you can, if you can imagine what I mean by that, that yeah, uh, sure. you, know, you, you want one where you, where you where you rub each other right and wrong the right ways. That is, right. I'd like, I'd, if, if I'm going to keep close company with someone, I'd like them to be someone who's disappointed when I don't get around to what I aim to do. Not naggy about it, but, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to be mothered at this point, but it's still nice to have someone who applauds when I'm getting to what I want to what I, what I want to be doing, what I aim right. to be doing. Um, and is, and, uh, and is delighted when I, yeah. So, so, okay. So that's an example of outsourcing my internal constraint. I think of willpower as a bit of a weenie. It's not, it's not that powerful. Uh, mm. that is if I brought Oreos into the house, I'd say no to them maybe five times. And then I'd say yes to them because my willpower isn't, isn't much. So I don't bring them into the house. That's how I impose a constraint from the outside mm -hmm. that is e makes it easier for me. I don't have to rely on my willpower as much. Um, but where you outsource, who you outsource to is a crucial question um, that's often overlooked. It's not like you, you want a sangha, a community of any sort, you, you want the right peer pressure for where you want to grow, not the wrong peer pressure for where you want to yeah. grow. Right. And I would say that if you're someone who, who intuitively treats confirmation bias as the solution to all of your problems, and by the way, I would say toddlers do, mm -hmm. that is toddlers haven't yet realized that they're going to have to uh, keep up with reality in order to survive. So there's an, there's an impulsiveness about humans where words are originally not for communicating rigorous uh, uh, rational ideas, therefore rationalizing what we want to do. That's where we all start. So if you somehow are in that state of impulsiveness, where all that matters is your perspective and your impulse, you can find yourself a community, here I'd be talking about a cult, that encourages you to do that. That is, it becomes a externalized confirmation bias where it keeps out anything that unflatters you and lets in anything that flatters you. And I hmm. think that that drives a whole lot more joining than we care to admit. People assume that they're joining something uh, for the wisdom they gain from it, but I think half of it is just the freedom to feel affirmed all the time because they are a member of this romantically self-flattering confirmation bias yeah. uh, filter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let me ask you my typical 
podcast for this podcast question. And that is, you had mentioned or alluded to knowing how to not become a a hole slash butthead yourself, right? I mean, that that you can avoid going down that that trap. So one of my themes for this podcast is how can you arm yourself with some tools that allow you to identify a little bit earlier in the game that maybe you are losing the emotional uh, I don't, I don't like the word battle. You've got me questioning every word now that I'm thinking of. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. That's great. I love it. Keep but, it loose. Freedom. Yeah, but freedom. Does, uh, <laughs> Attica, <laughs> I hear you. Um, I, 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 I'm looking for sort of emotional inoculation yeah. techniques. Okay. That, that's yeah. what I'm after. What yeah. do you, yeah. okay. Maybe that's yeah. the no, simplest it, way. This is, this is fundamental. I'm glad you asked. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, poems is by this guy named Piet Hein. He writes these tiny little poems. He, uh, he ended up living a life a little parallel to, my, to mine in that he was uh, 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 Niels Bohr's right-hand man. And I'm kind of like that to Terry Deacon, this, this neuroscientist. Um, but he wrote these whimsical things, and he wrote one I liked a lot. Philosophers find their true perfection knowing the follies of humankind by introspection. <laughs> um, my original mantra getting into this work, I see I'd come out of a community that that was where where I realized ultimately that I had I had basically hired an external source of confirmation bias that kept my doubts at bay that felt like a habit I could rely on so I wouldn't have to doubt myself I wouldn't have to I wouldn't have as many doubts and I wouldn't doubt myself that was that commune I was a part of mm -hmm. and I come out of it and realize that dog don't hunt it's not that's not going to work for this lifetime I um and uh and I, the first book I was going to write was called nothing personal um and it was it can be a cross between my folks are Jewish. I come from Jewish background. I'm an atheist, but my, so it was going to be Borscht Belt Buddhist biology is what it was going to be. Um, it was going to be called nothing personal. And my first month, my first, I had a couple of uh, ironic things I said back then. Um, one was I wouldn't put it past me. There's nothing that other humans do. These are kind of like uh, exceptionalist anonymous. I admit that I have a tendency to think of myself as exceptional mm. and, um, and, to, and to gather to me anything that could give me evidence of that. And to <laughs> humble myself on that, I'm saying, I wouldn't put it past me. I wouldn't mm. put it past me. Whatever they do, whatever I laugh out at on others, I'll end up wearing within the week. Um, uh, no matter how hard I chase the truth, it will never catch me. I was admitting to myself a kind of, um, uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's basically an attempt to overcome the natural tendency to think of myself as exceptional. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, I put up an, a meme on Instagram, which says, you are exceptional with an asterisk underneath to you. Yes, I mean, every, yes, so is everybody, right? So I, I wouldn't put it past me to, to become an a-hole. In fact, um, I assume if you don't want to be a total a-hole, you have to expect some anxiety. Um, that, is, that is an emotional warrior 
is not looking for the set point, the perfect piece that comes from being in the perfect place at all times. Mm. I even am suspect of all avatars at this point. I think uh, being enlightenment is a, it, enlightenment is a is a great goal so long as you recognize that you it no one achieves it. Yeah. The pursuit of enlightenment <laughs> is a fruitful exercise in futility, is how I'd frame it. Um, so. so so yeah, it's fine to have goals like that, but it's dangerous to have them out there. Like this guy did everything perfectly and had the formula by which we all should live because that's next door neighbors to demagogue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, it's, that's a very cultish thing to say about a human. We're humans, you know, we're this mid-sized mammal that just acquired language. <laughs> Give us a break, um, lighten up about yourself and about everybody else. Um, so that's that's the most fundamental tool, and it plays out in what um, I've come to see as fallibilist irony. Mm. Fallibilism is a key term for me in philosophy. It's the recognition that no one gets a hundred percent anything. That all all the behaviors we engage in, all the responses we have to our environment, all of our interpretations, our bets, their guesses. Uh, that's what's implied by trying. Yoda was completely wrong. There's only trying. Um, and, and we live in this wiggly world where a solution in one situation could be the source of a problem in a different situation. That is, sure. there's yeah. something fundamentally ironic about life. And a fallibilist, so the mantra for a fallibilist, I came up with it, but it does capture what's going on there is, no matter how confident I am in a bet, I'm still more, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. Mm. It's completely different from that school of thought that says, since no bet is 100%, every bet is equally true. Mm -hmm. That I consider to be a dangerous kind of garbage that's out there. I call it the doctrine of foregone inconclusion. Like no one can know anything because you can't know anything 100%. No, there are clearly better bets and worse bets. Yeah. But you should be spending your life trying to make them and recognize that you're making them. So that's my answer how to, to how I try to inoculate myself against um, falling uh, into falling for the allure of uh, of being an a-hole because mm. it is really lusty. It's a it's a lusty place to be. Playing God is so much easier than being human. Hmm. It'd be tempting to all of us. We uh, we underplay that because we want to say. It's a bad place to stay, a bad place to be. No, being an a-hole is a gloriously intoxicating place to be. It's just <laughs> that you're floating your boat by making the waters choppy for everyone else around you. So cut it out is basically what I'm trying to say. Yeah, interesting. It's good. That's good. All right, man, this was this was a blast. Do you have anything, any parting words you wish to share? I I think that's probably uh, more than enough. I tend to I tend to overstuff things. Um, but I I love the questions and uh, and to have the questions keep on coming. Um, actually, I will uh, I'll end with a limerick I wrote about questions, which is um, let's see, <laughs> let's see if I can remember this one. Um, oh, <laughs> I can't find it. It's coming. Let's see. I'll forget it. Um, as my father used to say, and I'll always remember that he always said it. He said, always, no, wait, he said, never. That's, just a, that's a joke. That's a Steve Martin joke. Anyway, I don't remember my own limerick. That's pitiful. I should have ended on a high note. 
Oh, well, no, I found it. I found it. After it finding solutions that fit, I like to kick back and just sit on my laurels, but then a resulting dilemma proves questions in life just don't quit. Nice. There you go. <laughs> well done. Well remembered. See, that's good. <laughs> I'm 65. Give me a Party. minute. There you go. Very yeah. nice. Okay. Um, links. Any in which way you want to tell us how to contact you? Yeah. So you'll find if you if you Google my name, you'll find way too much of me online. You'll find. Uh, so that's Jeremy Sherman. If you put .com at the end of it, <clears throat> JeremySherman.com you'll find a consolidated version of me. It's a web page I'm just building out, but it's got my big, my eight big research questions on the front page and the media page is fully loaded. Um, Facebook friend me, I'm, I'm generating memes all day. Instagram me also, Jeremy Sherman, PhD. Um, and, uh, but I have three podcasts. Um, one is called To Name It Is To Tame It, Terms for Reading Between the Lines with Greater Comprehension. One's a debating one where I chat, where I debate myself. It's called negotiate with yourself and win. Um, nice. So these are this is a, a fierce debate between Jeremy Sherman, PhD and Jeremy Sherman, GED. Um, <laughs> and then I've got another one, which is just the whole book. Yours for free as a pod class. What's up with a-holes? Um, uh, advanced psychoproctology for beginners. And then I have these 950 articles on psychology today. Um, I'm not hard to find. I might be easy to, uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not hard to find. Um, and I'm easily escaped. I'm a, I'm a fisher of men, but it's all catch and release. I'm not, I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm not for everyone. That's for sure. <laughs> catch and release. I like this. It's great. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I thank you for your time and I will put the links for people that want to get a hold of you into the show notes. This is a fun interview. I hope we can do another one one of these days. I'm happy to do it any old time. It's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to hang with you. All right. Thank you. You too. Since you know everyone, now you can not name can, drop me. I'm going so. to be name dropping you. <laughs> nice. Well done. Right. All right. Good. You take care. All right. All right. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you for sharing your time with us today. We would like to know what your thoughts are on today's topic. Please join the conversation on www.kyennis.com and at Instagram at Way of the Emotional Warrior. So have a great day and be well.